Good morning. Oh, everyone's still awake. That's, that's a good sign. So, great. Lovely to see you all. This morning, as, as, uh, as, um, as John mentioned, we're continuing in our study in Colossians. We've been looking at Colossians for quite a few weeks now. And uh, during January, um, we were challenged to read through the whole book every day. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. But I hope many of you at least read Colossians a few more times than once. I did. I didn't manage every day by any means, but I did manage to read it through a few more times than once, and it's amazing what you read in that book. Just looking back at something with new eyes, you'd think reading a few, maybe four or five pages, time after time, would get a bit boring, but the Bible's a fantastic book, and when you do something like that, and when you study in depth, you you find so much more. I mean, sometimes when I'm given a topic like this, uh, and and you look at it, and you read it through, and you think, oh, crumbs, how am I going to get half an hour out of that? And then as you study it, as you get back and you look at it, you think, crumbs, how can I fit what I've got to say into half an hour? Because there is so much in there. So I trust uh, you will enjoying this study in Colossians. Rachel, I know, she's not here today, but Rachel Baker put up on Facebook that she'd been enjoying the study. So, and quite a few others liked that comment on Facebook, so I trust I won't spoil that run of things this morning. Let's pray anyway. Lord, thank you for your word that we've received in the Bible. We pray as we study and as we learn from it, together today, that you will give us open hearts and open ears to hear, for we ask it. And all the people said, Amen. So we, real, we, re, we believe Paul wrote this book under the threat of his very life. He wrote it in support of a growing but victimised church. And it's an exciting document. Ooh, and it worked. Great. Technology's not been doing great this morning, so it's good, good that the clicker works. So, Excellent, I can relax. Whew. The church itself was subversive at this moment. It was underground, and it was seen as a real challenge to the pagan Roman emperors because it wouldn't submit to worshipping the emperor as a false god. Paul's arrest and his imprisonment and his ultimate execution show that very, very clearly. The price that was to be paid for teaching that the emperor didn't approve of. Paul, just writing this letter under house arrest, is continuing that process of undermining the Roman pagan authorities right under the very nose of the guards. As you can see from the the picture, sometimes the emperor's nose is pretty big. But even so, Paul got under it. Another thing he removes this, in this letter, he removes this idea that there's some mystery out there, that there's, there's some struggle that we need to find. He, he explains that the divine mystery is now a revealed mystery. Christ is the full glory of God revealed in us, he says. There's no big cosmic secret out there. See, the Roman Empire at the time, and for a long while after, was full of mystery religions. Here in the northeast, we've got evidence of that. This, this is the Mithraeum up at Carabra, just up the road, up the Roman wall. You can see it yourself if you want a nice Sunday afternoon run out. And 1,800 years ago, there, in that very spot, on those very stones, the god Mithras was worshipped in darkness, in gloom, in secrecy, and behind closed doors. Mystery religions were hugely popular. And the mystery and getting on the inside and having secret knowledge was the allure. And people loved to think 
They're in on a secret. Christianity and Paul's teaching of it blew all of that dust and darkness and secrecy open and shone a light on God's working with human beings. And then thirdly, Paul in this this second chapter, he's also undermining false teaching that's creeping and spreading and coming into the church. And he's undermining and subverting those ideas. And that, so what, what, what do I mean by that? What, what's, how can you under, un, undermine false teaching? Well, let's just read a little earlier than today's passage in something Andy touched on last week. Verse 9 there. For, Christ, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. English grammar nerds will spot the tautology there. The redundancy, all the fullness. In the Greek text, in the original um, manuscript, the same word is written twice, and the literal translation is, in the fullness of the fullness. Paul was an educated man. This wasn't bad grammar. It was a literary device to emphasise the word. So why would he do that? What was he trying to emphasise? The word fullness is our translation of the Greek word, the original Greek word, pleroma. So he's saying that Christ is the pleroma of the pleroma. The word fullness, pleroma, is mentioned a lot in Colossians. Hopefully, when you've been doing your homework, you've spotted that. You might have picked up on this as a theme that comes through a lot. And if you haven't, go back and read it again and you'll spot it. You've learned something new. So why? Well, again, as Andy mentioned last week, this book is challenging false teaching and ideas that were beginning to corrupt and pollute the new church. We don't really know the specifics of this false teaching, all the detail of it. In any case, it's probably not that profitable to spend a lot of time researching a load of nonsense, but perhaps the most likely candidate of what this was was some sort of Jewish form of an emerging form of Gnosticism. That's with a G, like in GNU, Gnosticism. Gnosticism wasn't any organised religion as such. It wasn't a defined philosophy. It was just growing up. It was just becoming into place in the first century. Really, it wasn't until the second century that it got legs. And it's a bit like we see around us in the New Age kind of thinking and movement at the minute. It's a bit of this, a bit of that. Whatever floats your boat, whatever makes you feel good and spiritual and helps you get in touch with your inner chakra or whatever, whatever nonsense comes up. Gnostic ideas borrowed from Christianity, from Judaism, from Greek philosophy, from pagan religions they saw around them, all sorts. It was a real cut-and-shut job. But this idea of play Roma was what pulled it all together. God existed in all his fullness, but his fullness was diffused throughout the universe. It was stronger the closer you got to God... But by the time you got to grubby old little humans on planet Earth, it was pretty much dilute. And just like the closer you got to the sun, the hotter it is and the brighter it is, but the further away from it you are, the darker and the murkier and the cooler it is, which is a bit of a problem for us in the northeast. but at the top you've got God, his pleromas diffused throughout the universe, and the closest beings to God, the ones who get the most of his fullness, are the angels. So that... Colossian believers were being challenged by these people teaching that this idea that this fullness didn't in fact exist in Christ, 
fullness existed everywhere. And they were called, they were called Gnostics because gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And the Gnostics claim to have secret knowledge. They were teaching if you didn't have to narrow yourself down to just Jesus, to just one perspective, when every part of the cosmos participates in some way in the pleroma of God. They taught the best way to get fullness was to enter into their secret knowledge, the spiritual, the angelic realms. So you'd learn to invoke angels and speak to them and get them to do your will. And you can see the attraction in that kind of mysticism. And I think that's what Paul seems to be challenging here. We keep seeing this word fullness all over the place. And it's the context of what it means and why Paul considers it important. So it's hard for us to get our head around it today a little bit. Gnosticism is a dead philosophy. No one really believes it anymore. We don't really understand it or hear it day to day. But Gnostic ideas and some of the threads that were started 2,000 years ago in their thinking do pop up from time to time, even today. The idea, for instance, that material creation is evil and the only the spiritual realm is good is a Gnostic idea. And it's troubled the church throughout its life and it still continues to do so. The notion some things are sacred and some things are profane, that comes from Gnosticism. It's nothing to do with the Bible. That's dualism. It's saying some things matter to God and some things don't. The Bible doesn't teach it, yet we see it all over the wider church movement. It's a seductive idea, but it's false, so don't get deceived by it. And Paul begins to challenge in chapter 2, what he calls in verse 8, hollow and deceptive philosophy. I think this may be these Gnostic ideas. So when he continues on into verse 9, he says the fullness of the fullness, in other words, all the fullness he could possibly want or imagine or conceive of even existing, he's directly challenging and undermining and subverting this false idea that was right at the heart of this Gnostic teaching. When Jesus walked on earth in bodily form, he wasn't just some meek, mild, kind Mr. Nice Guy. No one crucifies Mr. Nice Guy. Jesus radically subverted the existing temporal and spiritual world. When we preach Jesus, it's impossible not to do the same. If we're not radically subverting pagan ideas, we're not preaching Jesus, we're preaching something else. In the early part of chapter 2, Paul shows how Jesus undermined the propaganda of the Roman Empire, how he undermined the allure of the mystery religions, and then how he undermined this specific false poisonous teaching that infected the early church in Colossae. And then in verse 10, he sums it up. He says, you've been given the fullness of Christ. Otherwise, don't waste your time looking anywhere else for the pleroma of God. You, as a born-again, repentant Christian, already have it. See, the challenge from the Gnostics was, don't narrow yourself down to just Jesus. Yes, he participated in the pleroma, but there's more out there for you to get. And Paul says, no, rubbish. The fullness of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and because you were born again in Christ, you were brought to fullness. Amen. Now, Andy dealt last week again 
with this idea that we've been circumcised in Christ. If you want to cover that ground again, please check out our website to look at the podcast. <coughs> Excuse me. But to summarise that, or to paraphrase it, we've got these ideas. We've been brought to fullness. We've been buried with Jesus. We've been circumcised with Jesus. Our old nature's gone. It's been put off. We've been raised with Jesus. We're alive now with Jesus. We're forgiven. Our debts are cancelled. He's disarmed the powers and authorities that condemned us. And that all means we receive by grace what Jesus is by nature. We receive by grace what Jesus is by nature. So that all sets us up what I want to say about this particular passage this morning. Pretty much the longest introduction I've ever done. So apologies for that, but it's, it's these two passages that Andy dealt with last week and what I'm dealing with today are infinite, in, intimately intertwined. Let's read Colossians 2, verse 16. If you have your Bible, turn to it. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. See there, worship of angels. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with the idle notions by their unspiritual minds. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since he died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the word, do you submit to its rules? <coughs> don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teaching. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining essential indulgence. Amen. <coughs> so all that first half of the passage, which I recapped in so much detail when Andy's already covered it so well last week, was because it sets up this first word. Therefore. Therefore. The f- A friend of mine once said, if you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. So we've done that. He's undermined, he's subverted the false teaching, explained why it's wrong, and because it's wrong, therefore. Don't let anyone judge you. In other words, put you out of fellowship from God's people by what you eat or drink. And here we see (coughs) the Jewish taint to this Gnostic philosophy because he seems to imply that these false teachers were putting store in their historic Jewish rituals. Don't let those who insist on religious observance disqualify you. In other words, don't believe that you can add one jot to all that list of righteousness that you already have in Jesus. Those bullet points are put up there. Don't think that rituals, festivals, what you eat or drink, what you put in your mouth, will add anything to that. Paul's not condemning the rituals themselves. He's not saying they serve no purpose. Of course he observes the Sabbath, but the, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He isn't saying observing the Sabbath is a sin. 
What he's challenging is this idea that somehow you can add anything to what Jesus has already done to us by being holy. What we already have in Jesus. So many false religions all around the world, even today, say Jesus is good, but you also need to do this. That's wrong, and that's his point. The new moon festivals and the Sabbath have their purpose, but they aren't the real thing. They're only got value because they pointed to Jesus. They're just shadows of the real thing. The reality is Jesus. So how do we do that today? Do we think one type of service is more spiritual than another? That maybe boisterous praise is more holy than quiet contemplation? That it's more exciting and passionate and therefore of more value, more holy? Or do we think the opposite, that a style of service is quiet and, conf- and contemplative and sensitive and done quietly is the right way to do things? And all this boisterous noise is un- 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 unchristian and not reverent. I've heard both points of view. Sometimes I've heard them expressed very forcefully. And there's been a real source of anger for some, even to the point of threatening to leave churches, if you can believe it. Can I say both are equally valid? This passage shows you mustn't get self-righteous or judgmental about them. We should prefer one another and be gracious. The style's not important. It's the substance that counts. And the substance is Jesus. And if the substance is Jesus, the rest is style, and it really doesn't matter that much. Rituals and forms are shadows. They mean nothing in themselves unless they help us see Jesus more clearly. Maybe we've heard some folks say, if we're really a Christian, then our salvation would have had a spiritual experience and be given miraculous gifts. And if we haven't got the gift of tongues, we can't really be a proper Christian, can we? Well, here in Cosse, some folks were teaching special spiritual phenomena were necessary too. Paul goes on to say, don't let anyone disqualify you who delights in the false humility and the worship of angels. Angels represented to the Gnostics the least diluted form of the Pleroma, next to God himself. And their secret knowledge they were so proud of was about how by fasting and taking on certain rituals and certain foods and doing things in magic rituals or whatever, you could experience visions and you could evoke them to your bidding. And this was a seductive idea about this diffuse pleroma. But this may not have been the classic heresy. We can't be absolutely certain. We're putting a bit of a jigsaw together, but if it is, it explains the therefore. Let no one exclude you. Therefore, let no one exclude you because you're not participating. In all of these Jewish festivals, they're just shadows because they're not... Compared to Jesus who fulfilled their meaning, they're just shadows. Don't let anyone disqualify because you don't have mystical experiences. They're these people that say that have unspiritual minds. They have overactive imaginations. Don't go back into slavery that living that way represents. So how does that apply to me? I don't have many Gnostics in my life, let alone any who've tried to disqualify me from anything. Turned over two pages. There we go. Well, have you ever done this? Oh, where are my glasses? I put them down there. I told you, I put them there. I put them right there. They're gone. I mean, I've, I've done that. Have you done that? Anyone done that? 
You run around the house frantic, getting frustrated, shouting at the kids, kicking the cat, slamming doors. And they're on your head all the stupid time and you didn't realise it. And how foolish you feel at the end of it all. And this is the picture Paul's giving the Colossians. They're looking for something they've already got. And what they need to do is just wake up and find the stupid glasses right on their forehead and look where it is and not where it isn't. They don't get suckered into believing they need some more form of spiritual experience, mystical experience, the power of angels, because the fullness of the fullness lives in bodily form in Jesus, and you're in Jesus, so you have it already. Praise the Lord. Don't get suckered. But just like the Colossians 2,000 years ago, we're no more clever than they are. They were people just like we were. They're intelligent people. We're still prone to do exactly the same thing with the same lie from the same devil today. Colossians 1 verse 10. Remember, Andy was taking us through the early part of of chapter 1 verse 10. Paul says we're to live a life that's worthy of the Lord. Verse 10 says this. So you may live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. We often mistake that sense that we believe we're not worthy. So to get worthy, we've got to try hard and become consumed by guilt because we're not worthy enough and we fail and we're human and we're imperfect. But Paul uses this word worthy in a different way. He turns it on his head, he subverts it. It really means corresponding to, live up to, He's saying God's already considered you worthy, so stop worrying about it, just start living it. The reality is God's view of you, not your view of yourself. If you've repented of your sins and you've acknowledged that Jesus died, and you've taken him as Lord, if you've acknowledged Jesus died for those sins, then God at that point counts you worthy. End of, job done, period, full stop, nothing more to add. We can never repay God for our salvation. We can never make ourselves worthy. That's not part of the deal. So don't even try. You're wasting your time. Jesus accepted that when you, repent, when you repented and asked for forgiveness, you are considered worthy because of Christ's sacrifice. And you get on without living, without all the old habits of sin and the paralyzing guilt that comes with them. The shame, the fear embarrassment, if you've surrendered to Christ you've accepted him as your identity then that's what your identity is not whatever it used to be before that live like you believe that instead of believing the old lies of the devil the whispers, you're a sinner you're a habitual liar, you're a drunk you're an addict, you're hopeless, you're pointless you're bad tempered, you're lazy you've flopped again, you've done it again you can't cope, you can't be trusted you're a waste of space, you're a failure, you'll never be good enough you're mine. Our identity is in Christ. We may not be very good at it, but it's who we are. We've turned our back on what we were before. It's nothing to do with us anymore. It doesn't have to be. Sixteen years ago, a little time before this photograph was taken, I became a dad. One minute, I was just a common garden bloke. The next, suddenly overnight, I changed this new creature with awesome responsibilities and an empty bank account. <laughs> I, had to, I had to learn all about nappies and feeding and sleepless nights and birthday parties and soft play and eating this endless array of half-eaten cakes and how to clean vomit out of a car seat and, and, and 
Still later, the joys of watching football matches on the freezing cold February mornings and sleepovers and suddenly realising that homework needs to be done and you don't know chemistry. And, oh. and now, 16 years later, I'm an awesome dad. And if you don't believe me, ask my kids. Well, you can't because they're away at half term with their grandma. So, you know, but when they come back, take it from me, they'd say I'm awesome. Now, <laughs> maybe not. 16 years ago, I was pants. I was, I'm awesome now because over those 16 years, it's dawned on me, I'm not just a bloke anymore. I am actually a dad and they're my responsibility and I better just get on with it. I can't do anything about it. I can't put them back. It ain't going to happen. You just get on with it and enjoy the ride. But here's the thing. 19th of May, 1999, I was every bit as much of a dad as I am now. It just hadn't dawned on me. And that's what Paul's saying. You have the fullness of the fullness of God. Wake up. Stop pretending you haven't. Grow up. Explore what you've got instead of harking back to what a reality that's gone and is past. It's actually dead and buried. You went through the waters of baptism, or God willing, and it's showed, it's gone, it's washed, it's clean, as we sang this morning. Blood ran red, and I'm washed white. My sins are washed white. That's the truth, not these lies from the pit. The glasses are on your head. Stop looking for them. Wake up, you dozy twonk. I'm quoting the message there, in case... You know, <laughs> You don't have to go anywhere or do anything. You don't have to pay anyone. You don't have to starve yourselves. You, you have, don't have to have special mystical experiences and boast about them. You have the fullness. It's in you. You're in Christ. You receive by grace what he is by nature. There's nothing else out there for you. Scripture says you're holy. So be holy. Over 16 years and counting, I became a father. I already was I couldn't have been one suddenly, but I couldn't lose my fatherhood status. It's my identity. It's a fact. And it's that security that allows me to be imperfect but grow into it. I wasn't always the awesome, awesome dad I am now. Oh, it's good to say that and not have anyone confused me from the back. For quite a lot of that, those 16 years, and probably for the next however many more, I sucked. Victoria would probably say probably for about 15 and a half of those 16 years I really wasn't very good. And she'd probably be right. I put nappies on back to front. I forgot birthdays. I lost my rag. I fell asleep in carol concerts. I, I totally failed to inspire any of them to enjoy music practice. But none of those things meant I wasn't a dad. They were just mistakes, problems, hurdles, things to get over and deal with and move on. And that's what life's like for Christians. Paul's saying we aren't defined by our sin anymore. It still happens. We're in Christ. We're human. We're learning. We have the fullness of fullness of God. We sin from time to time because we make mistakes, but we're not defined by it. We learn from our mistakes. We move on. We put them right. We become more like the reality of who we are. It may take years sometimes to learn some painful lessons. It may, in fact, in fact it will take us the rest of our lives. But that's what we do because this is who we are. And that's the good news of Colossians in this section. Far too many of us live in guilt and shame, with a sense of burden or drudgery. You know you're a failure, you're confused, the same, you've 
confess the same sin 557 times. You say, yeah, there's fullness, but I don't feel particularly full. That's the devil's lie. And he'd make you keep looking for something you already have. He's not the guy that says, look, your glasses are on your head, just pull them down. He's the guy saying, oh, oh yeah, they must have gone. The cat's pinched them, or your wife stood on them, or the kids have nicked them because they don't like you, or any, any things that go through your head other than the truth of just looking for the glasses on your head. Did any of you see this picture on Facebook the other week? This is Cara. Cara is a rescue dog who's rescued from cruel owners who'd mistreated her. She was so traumatised that in the rescue kennels where this picture was taken, she couldn't bear to move out the corner. She sat facing the corner and wouldn't move. She was scared stiff. Her reality had changed, but she'd been so traumatised she didn't realise it had changed. She didn't know she was not going to get beaten if she behaved like a normal dog would. And it's a tragedy. Poor little dog, poor little thing. She's all right now. She's a happy, healthy dog now. Do you get my point? Her reality had changed around her, but it took a while for it to twig. She cowered in the corner, not realising she was free. She could do anything she wanted. She could eat, she could sleep, she could lick. It took a lot of love and coaxing for her to come out and to realise, to learn to trust and build up confidence and move in the reality of the new situation. Her new, her new owners weren't going to lay a finger on her, but she didn't know that. Her reality had changed, but her behaviour hadn't, and she wasn't experiencing the reality of her freedom from the moment she was rescued. And that's exactly us with sin. With Jesus, we've got freedom. We can move on. We've got the fullness of the fullness of the deity to enjoy. We repented of our former lives. They're over. They're gone. They're done with. They can't slave us anymore. You may not believe it. You may not understand it. How does it actually work? I don't know. It takes time to grow into your new identity. And that's why this matters. It takes time and it takes practice. And it takes intentionality. The writer to the Hebrews calls it perseverance. To learn to live and relax in the identity that's being declared over you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, everything's permissible, but not everything's beneficial. And this is such a great antidote to the legalism that can creep in and make us judge others or judge ourselves. Our guiding principle should be asked, is this helpful in my relationship with God and with others, or is it not? If it's not, then I'll stop. If it is, then I'll continue. We don't live by rules, we live by the principle. Is it helpful? I might choose to go for a drink with one person because they're not out to get me drunk and they're not going to be stumbled by seeing me have a drink. But tomorrow, with a different person, I'll not choose to drink because they struggle with alcohol. Or it may be a bad witness to them. Or they may be a bad influence on me. This is helpful. And as much as we want to fix, manage, to deserve, to earn, we can only get on our knees and repent and keep going. Sometimes the Holy Spirit moves in our lives and takes away a long-standing problem overnight, miraculously. I have a friend who became a Christian as a teenager, and overnight he just stopped swearing like that. He'd had been a normal foul-mouthed 15, 16-year-old boy. I don't know if um, you know many 15, 16-year-old boys, but the language at school, even when I was a kid, is not polite, it's not nice. And he joined in with everyone else, and then overnight he just couldn't swear anymore. 
the rest of the pe- most other people I know, it's a problem. Sometimes your temper gets the best of you. God moves sometimes. But sometimes it may take a lifetime. It takes a while for us to believe it. There's a point when we're tempted. But we stop. And at that point, we'll be a people where Jesus just got that little bit bigger and we've just got that little bit smaller. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What do we choose to believe is true? God's stated opinion of us or whispers from anywhere else? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of the situation that we're in. That if we accept your word, if we trust that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins and accept him at Lord, you have made us, you will count us worthy. At the cross where your blood ran red and my sin washed white. We pray you'll help us learn that truth. Apply it to our lives and grow daily closer to Jesus as a result. And Lord, pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know that truth for themselves right now. We ask you will reveal yourself to them and convince them of their need of you in their lives today. We pray now to the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Our service is over. Thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you.